We are in our fourth week in our How to Read the Bible series. And um, our text for today, our primary text, is the same text we've had the whole time and that we'll have after this for two more weeks. Um, so uh, we've challenged everybody to try to memorize this, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Um, so we're going to read this part of our sermon text together. I want to invite you where you are to read it aloud with me. And then I'll continue to read uh, the Matthew passage. If you're able, where you are, uh, to stand for the reading of God's word. If someone what to do here. All right, let's, let's read together. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Amen. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And this is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, in this time I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy I know Zoom church has its pros and cons, and I think that for many of us, this is not our preferred way to meet. But one of the things I enjoy about Zoom church is it has a way of, um, at least for me, sort of rattling me out of my mindless routines, uh, sometimes breaking the habit of what we normally do on Sunday mornings helps me to pay attention in a new way. And uh, this morning, the idea of paying attention, of being tuned in, is uh, central to what we're going to be looking at in the text. We have been asking the question each week, uh, how do we read the Bible? 
how should we approach it? This is a really important question because uh, we confess that the Bible is God's word. We confess that that's that it's uh, an authority for us. We confess in our tradition that it's our highest uh, it's our highest written authority. So we have a high regard for the scripture, but on the other hand, uh, we don't always know how to read it or how to apply it, and it can get awkward. Uh, one person over here reads the Bible and says it says one thing. Somebody over here reads the Bible and believes it says something completely uh, contradictory, both sincere, both looking at the same text. One pastor in one church looks at a passage and says it means this. Another pastor in another church looks at the same passage and says it means something else. All over the world, uh, it's staggering uh, how much Christians from all Christian traditions agree on, but it's very uncomfortable when we consider how much we disagree on, taking, uh, uh, considering the fact that we all hold the same scriptures to be our source of information and our authority. Now, we've reviewed these ideas each week, and sort of the big idea that's led us to uh, ask the question, how should we read the Bible, is that uh, if the Bible is God's word, we don't have a Bible problem, but we do have a Bible reading problem. We need to grow in our capacity to read the Bible well, to interpret the Bible well. So that's what we're doing here. And in order to do that, we have gone to uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, these passages that, uh, this passage that, that tells us about what it means that God speaks. How does God speak? Uh, what is the nature of his speaking? Because if we can wrap our minds around what it means that God speaks, well, then we can wrap our minds around how we should hear and how we should read his word. So uh, we have gotten, let's see, this is our fourth week. We've talked about uh, God, uh, God's word, the Bible. We should read it theologically. It's a God book. It's not a me book. It's all about God. It's from God. It's for God. We need to read it with God at the center. That was the first week. We talked about reading the Bible Christologically. It's a Jesus book. Above all else, we saw that in the Matthew passage we read today. Jesus says that Jesus taught and he believed, he still believes that all of the scriptures are all about him. They all point to him. And that's what it means to read the Bible as a Christian. It's a Jesus book. Now, last week, we talked about what it means to read the Bible historically. God spoke into history to the prophets. They wrote down their words to people in their time and place. But the Bible also transcends history. It's relevant for us today. It's for us today. And the Bible uh, also makes history. It shapes history. Uh, the Bible is a history historical book. Uh, so today, what I want to do is I want to focus on reading the Bible textually. Reading the Bible textually. Uh, reading the Bible with a close eye on the actual text, on the text itself, the words themselves, the text, its qualities, and its use. Now, why is that important? Why do we need to pay attention to the actual 
text of scripture. What I mean by that is the actual words on the page, the, the, the actual words and sentences and paragraphs. Why do we need to, to, to make such a big deal about the text? Well, look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. It says that in the past, God spoke. God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, who he's appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. God chose to disclose himself to us. His primary way of disclosing himself is through Jesus Christ, through becoming one of us, a human being. Jesus is God's living word. But his secondary way of disclosing himself is through a book, through words that he spoke to prophets, uh, through words that he inspired that prophets wrote down and come to us in the form of a book. And these two, we can call them uh, avenues of revelation, uh, Jesus, the living word, and then the, the, the text of scripture, the written word. Uh, they're really, we can talk about them as two different kinds of revelation, but they're really not. They're really one in the same. And we see that in this passage because the written word is meant and put together by God to bear witness to the living word. So he gave us the scriptures to bear witness to Christ. All of this is true down to the fundamental level of the actual words themselves. Notice that in Hebrews 1, it says that in many times and various ways, God spoke. It, that's significant. It, would, it could say, uh, it could have said, it would still be beautiful. Uh, it could have said many times in various ways, God moved. Or in many times in various ways, God gave um, visions or impressions or convictions or illuminations to the prophets. But it doesn't say that. It says that God spoke. Speaking means words. God spoke. Words are vehicles that carry meaning. If you think about words like um, maybe like train cars, like cargo cars on a, on a freight train, you have the engine, and then behind the engine it carries these cars, and these cars are just they're empty vessels. They provide a structure. But inside of these cars you have things like uh, you have cargo. Uh, things that, like goods that are being shipped around. And that's how words work. God speaks. And by the engine of his breath, the Holy Spirit, we have these words that come along. And these words carry his truth, carry his meaning. And we can hear words and interpret words. 
That's special. This means that when God reveals himself, he does it in a way that is accessible. By using words, God created access to himself. God lives in unapproachable light. He is completely different than us. Um, We are made in his image, but he is so much greater. And the distinction between creator and creature is infinite. We can never cross that chasm. So God, wanting relationship with us, he condescended. He lowered himself and expressed himself to us using words, vehicles that we could latch onto and receive and understand. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. So what that means is the words of Scripture matter. The words matter. They are so very important. They're as important as the scripture itself as a whole. The words matter. Jesus in Matthew 5, 18, the passage we read uh, just a second ago, he was speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He expresses the idea that Uh, But he believes that all of the scriptures point to him, that he is the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. And then he says something staggering. In Matthew 5.18, he says, Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law He's referring to the scriptures there. That's a Hebrew way of referring to the Bible. Until everything is accomplished. When Jesus was teaching in his famous Sermon on the Mount about how he believed he was the fulfillment of all of the scriptures, which really works with Hebrews 1. He's the living word and the written word bears testimony to him. He's teaching this idea. And he says... Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will disappear until everything's accomplished. It's well known. It's a, it's a little bit anecdotal, uh, which which because it, it is uh, it's staggering uh, that when Jesus says not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen, what he says in the in the Greek that it's written in there in Matthew. He says, not an iota, which is a Greek word that has become an English word. Uh, Iota refers to, uh, that's the Greek. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew letter yod. Y-O-D is how we would spell it. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's a tiny little, it's just like a little, it almost looks like a little stroke. Smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And then he says, nor the stroke of a pen. The Greek word there is uh, keraia. And the, the idea is literally what it, what it means, like a pen on a page making a stroke. Jesus, right in the same sentence where he says that he is the fulfillment of all of Scripture, he is the big idea. He is the big picture. All of it's about him. 
He has got, is God's primary message. In that same sentence, he says that that message extends all the way down to the very smallest letter on the page, the smallest stroke of a pen by a scribe. That is absolutely staggering. What Jesus is giving here is he is letting the people there on the mountainside, Sermon on the Mount, and letting us in on his personal doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Every Bible reader, whether we know it or not, when we approach the Bible, we approach it with presuppositions. We approach it with an idea of what it is and what it's supposed to be. And all of us have different ideas of what it is and what it's supposed to be, if we were to get real detailed. Everybody, as part of this, carries within themselves a doctrine of Scripture, a doctrine of inspiration. We all start, we pick this up, and we all start with some preconceived notion of what it means that this is God's word or that people would claim that this is God's word. We come to the Bible with some of us with preconceived notions of its truthfulness, some of us with preconceived notions of its uh, untrustworthiness or distruthfulness, some of us with a preconceived uh, kind of an agnosticism or openness. We just don't know. Maybe we can never know. Here, Jesus lets us in on his presuppositions about the Bible. And I don't know about you, but I want my presuppositions, I want my doctrine of Scripture to match Jesus's, because he's my Lord. I want to believe what he believes about the Scripture. And what he says he believes are fundamentally two things. He believes that all of the Scriptures are all ultimately about him. And he believes that... Uh, the perfection, uh, the God-inspiredness, the perfect word of God in the scriptures exists down to the absolute smallest letter and stroke of a pen from those scribes uh, who wrote down the original manuscripts. That's crazy. It's an incredibly high doctrine of scripture what jesus describes here that all of the bible is god's inspired word all of it points to him and that that inspiration extends perfectly down to the very words and the original manuscripts that's come to be known in theological circles uh, with using adjectives like infallibility Scripture is infallible. Uh, it, 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 the idea is that it, 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 it can't be torn apart. It, it has a strong perfection about it. Words like uh, sufficiency. It, it says everything that we that that God that we need it to say. Everything we need to hear from God in the Bible, it says. Words like inerrancy. Everything that it affirms is true. God didn't make any mistakes in overseeing the writing of this book. These are words that we have come to use to describe this kind of high doctrine of Scripture. Trying to get our doctrine of Scripture to match Jesus's. Because the words matter. 
So, folks, when we read the Bible, that's when we read the Bible, when you read the Bible, when I, when I do, how should we read the Bible? What kind of Bible readers do we need to be? Well, we need to pay attention to the words, not just the general vibe, not just the general idea, uh, not just the context. All of these things are very important, but the very words themselves, the syntax of the sentences, the grammar, the construction. This is why, uh, as a pastor and and, and, a, and scholars, and we would, I would encourage anyone who is able to or has the time or interest to at any level. This is why reading the Bible. This is a this is a Greek New Testament. This is not the one I use because the text is tiny. But reading the Bible, trying to read it in the original languages, or getting tools to learn about these languages that the inspired text was written in. That's important. Um, okay, let's move on. The words matter. Here's here's another thing. Um, if we believe all of this about text, that it's perfect in, in its original manuscript form, that when the prophets and their scribes and the and the, the Holy Spirit inspired editors and they put together these original uh, text, they, they were absolutely perfect. Uh, one of the things that, that that means is that the way that we interpret the words matters a great deal. Like we, we've been talking about, we, we don't have a Bible problem, but we do have a Bible reading problem. Uh, if the Bible is infallible and inerrant and sufficient, all of those things, that's beautiful. But I am not infallible. I am not inerrant. And I am not sufficient. Which means that when I approach the text, uh, I need to be very, very careful how I interpret it, how I read it. So the words matter, and then interpreting the words matters. God's words are perfect, but our reading and our transmission, our interpretation of the words is not perfect. We need to know that to be good Bible readers. When I grew up, I grew up very much inside of a tradition that would say, you know what, uh, this is inerrant, this is infallible. So uh, I open it up. This is what it says. That's the end of it. We're done talking. End of story. And I don't know, maybe there's a time to approach things like that, but probably not. Because it skips a step, which is receiving, hearing, and interpreting these infallible words not to mention everything that we've said and everything that jesus said about the inspiration perfection of scripture down to the actual letter um you know what it it doesn't uh exactly apply to this it applies to the original manuscripts and you know what we don't have those nobody does they're gone uh, now, that doesn't mean we can't trust anything this says. That doesn't mean we can't trust anything this says. But it means that we need to use tools that God has given us. Uh, common grace, using our brains, using science uh, tools as we read the Bible. So, for example, we don't have the original manuscripts. 
But we do have a discipline that we have developed over time as human beings that I think God has given us in his grace. A discipline called textual criticism. What is textual criticism? Charlie, that sounds a little weird. Well, let me show you. We don't have the original manuscripts, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, but we do have a ton of ancient manuscripts. Uh, more than in staggering, uh, staggeringly more than other main ancient books like Plato or Josephus, things like that. We we have a ton of ancient manuscripts from all over uh, the ancient Near East, uh, from North Africa and Asia. We have tons of them. Now, when we take these ancient texts and uh, through the scholarly work and scientific work, we compare these texts. Imagine if they were on, like, like if you grew up in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, remember those uh, clear overhead projector sheets that was you could print something off on a clear sheet of paper and put it over a light and project it onto the wall. Imagine we put all these texts on top of each other and scholarly scientific work of noting all of the differences, all of the places where they aren't exactly consistent, and then looking where they are. And we put all these together, we can get a confident uh, a very trustworthy look at what those original manuscripts said. Look here in my Greek New Testament. I'm going to hold this up to the camera. This here is the main text of the New Testament. This is, I opened it. Uh, uh, <coughs> let's see here. Here, this is the book of Luke. Right here is the main text of the book of Luke. Uh, this on the side, these are cross-references, like maybe some of you have in your Bible. But this section down here, these little parts down here, you know what this is? This is called the textual apparatus. And this makes a note of every single place where there is um, divergence in ancient text. Now, you might say, Charlie, that's a lot of differences in the ancient texts. But when we put uh, when we look through most, most of these are very minor. They, they, they don't affect the meaning of the sentence. Most of these are, some of these you might even see in footnotes in your own Bible. It'll say, some ancient manuscripts say this. And you think, well, that's exactly what my own text was saying. But when we make note of all these, when we put them all together, you can get a pretty clear look at what the original text says. And that original text is inspired. Now, that's important. That scholarly, scientific work is important. Did you know that reading the Bible as God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word, in order to be able to do that well, did you know that God gave us science? God gave us scholarly methodology? Now, some voices in our culture think that you either trust the Bible or you trust science, but it doesn't work that way. God wants us to use our brains. So another thing, interpreting the text matters. This is why reading the Bible in a good translation, or maybe even from a few different translations matters. So as you study the Bible, what translation are you reading it in? Where did that translation come from? Now, at our church, we mostly use the NIV, the New International Version. And we use the NIV 
uh, as it was updated in 2011. Now, sometimes we'll use things from the New Living Translation, the NLT, uh, and then from time to time, once in a blue moon, we'll pull a verse from the CSB or the ESB. We, we use different translations. But did you know that lots of Bible translations, uh, they're, they're not all of them, none of them are perfect. Uh, if anyone who speaks multiple languages knows that there's no such thing as a perfect one-to-one -one translation uh, of, of sentences. Translation comes with culture. It comes with bias. Uh, so we need to look at it from different angles. Um, also, the Bible translations that we use, uh, again, we need to use our brains. Everyone has presuppositions about the text. So one reason we use the NIV is that it was translated by a large team of scholars that was put together from uh, different Christian traditions. Uh, not everybody was Reformed, not everybody was Baptist, not everybody, different varying Christian traditions from different schools and from different places in the world, different cultures, all coming together. And it's a translation that over time is periodically updated. Now, that's important. There are some translations out there, some of them popular, that were put out by publishing companies that have very clear theological uh, commitments, and even agendas and missions. And that's not bad. But if you read a Bible translation that comes from one of those, we need to keep in mind that maybe we're just getting one perspective on the text. And if the text in the original form is truly infallible and inerrant, maybe it can speak for itself. And so maybe... When we get a look at the text through lots of different people's eyes, uh, that's actually a good thing because lots of perspectives shows us what the text is actually saying for itself because it helps us, like comparing lots of ancient manuscripts, it helps us see past our bias. So that also applies to us in English. I love the NIV. I prefer it. But I don't only read the Bible in the NIV. I like the ESV, but I don't only read in the ESV. Some of us might have grown up in translations where the King James Bible is the only, I mean, in traditions where the King James Bible is the only trustworthy translation. Well, I do think that the King James Bible, alongside of Shakespeare, is the greatest work of American literature of all time. But you know what? It's not that good of a contemporary Bible translation anymore. Because language changes, which means translation is an ongoing process. So the way we interpret the text matters. We need to come at it with humility. Use the brains that God gave us. That's really important. Here's the last thing. The words matter. Interpreting the words matters. Last thing is applying the words matters. The way we apply the actual words of the Bible to our lives and to our hearts is really, really, really important. In the book of James, let me see, where's this verse? I wrote it down here. James 1.22, some of you might know this. It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
the book of James, he says that just listening to the word, you're deceiving yourselves. You have to do, actually do what it says. Folks, applying, obeying, doing the scripture matters. Uh, God's words are not just meant to be heard or read or understood or studied. They're meant to be taken to heart, applied to our lives, and obeyed. I love this passage in Ezekiel. This is from God's calling of the prophet Ezekiel, right at the beginning of the book. God calls him, and what does he say? He says, let me turn to it here. He says, son of man, eat this scroll. (laughs) Eat this book. Then go and speak to the people of Israel. He says, listen carefully. Take to heart all the words I speak to you. Listen carefully. Take to heart all the words I speak to you. Let them sink deep inside of your heart. And then go on your mission to my people and preach to them. They might listen to you. They might not listen to you. That's that's later. Right now, I want you to hear my words, Ezekiel. Let them sink deep into your heart. Eat them. Uh, what a beautiful metaphor. Taking them into yourselves, chewing, tasting, experiencing, being nourished from the word. Beautiful. Applying the words matters. Not just eat it. Eat and then go. Then go do something. Do something with it. Speak to my people. Um, This is really important, I think, for us where we are as a church. Uh, Just over, I see I've been here for about a year and a half now. Over a year and a half, I think I've gotten to know our church pretty well. I know our tradition, uh, our denomination, our tradition very well. And we tend to have this thing. Uh, maybe on a good day, it's a personality quirk. Maybe on a bad day, it's really something we shouldn't be doing. But we tend to have this thing where we we we, we want to know what God says. We want to know the word. We want to hear good sermons. We want to do Bible study. And then we get all of this beautiful information from God and about God. And we want to soak it in. And then we'll, we'll sit and we'll listen and we'll go, hmm, that was good. And then we'll just go right around, right back to everyday life. Um, nothing changes. We love to hear. We love to read. But sometimes, maybe by nature of our personality, it might never occur to us that we need to take these words to heart and then go speak them to others. Go change something about ourselves. Change something in our communities. Jesus said to his disciples, the risen Christ, before he ascended, says that he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. God said to Ezekiel, eat this book and then go to my people and speak to them. Folks, God has put us in the middle of one of the most un- un- churched cities in the country 
He's put us in the middle of a city that has huge problems with a housing crisis, with income disparity. He put us in the middle of a city in a, with, that has, in the middle of a cultural climate that has a big problem with political extremism. He has sent us into this environment. He has sent us in a world that's in, in, in a country that still struggles deeply with racism, with abuse, subjugation of women, children, people of color. We are sent into the world, and we have God's word on the page and in our hearts. Sometimes we just sit around and go, hmm, that's good sermons, good Bible reading time this morning. I did my Christian thing. That's awesome. We need to apply these words. Take them to heart. Not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. There's another way that this whole thing about the importance of the text, the inspiration of the text, the infallibility, the inerrancy of the text. Another thing about us talking about these things. A little over 100 years ago, there was something that happened in our country and also in Europe called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. That's the, what historians call it. Basically what that means is here in North America and in Western Europe, uh, starting at about 120 years ago, almost every major Protestant denomination uh, split down the middle or begin the process of splitting over essentially one issue. And that's the nature of the inspiration of scripture. You might know that today there are two big Presbyterian groups in North America. And the major difference between our groups is the way that we would articulate the doctrine and inspiration of scripture. Uh, in our tradition, we might have more in common theologically as PCA Presbyterians with Missouri Synod Lutherans or with Southern Baptists or with West Coast Bible Church Christians than we would with a PCUSA Presbyterian. And the reason is, is because of this thing that happened a little over 100 years ago in our culture that split our churches along these lines of how we would hear and articulate the nature of how we uh, consider the inspiration of the text. Is it fallible or infallible? Is it inerrant or are there errors? When does it become God's word? Did it become God's word when he spoke to the prophets and they wrote it down? Or does it become God's word when I read it and God's word happens somewhere in my heart? Big split. Now, part of the implications of this is that if you're like me and you grew up in the churches that are on the right side of the divide, by right, I don't mean, uh, I mean like right and left, the conservative side of the divide, then maybe you have been trained as I have. When you hear sermons or lectures or talking about things like inerrancy, infallibility, verbal plenary inspiration of scripture, there might be something in you that sits back and goes, that's right. 
That's right. I believe that. I believe that. That is the correct view. We are right. We got it right. Our church is a good church because we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture, that we are correct on this doctrine. We are a good church. And somewhere in there we have in mind the churches that don't hold this view, that might interpret it differently, Christians who might see it differently. And we go about our business thinking, check, got that one down. Podcasts I listen to, the books I read, the church I go to, they all believe in this secret handshake doctrine that we call inerrancy. We got it right. We're right with God. We're in the correct denomination. We're in the correct correct tradition. We're good. And we go about our business living in a city that's desperate for God and that's dying, ignoring the fact that we are the sent people of God into the world. Let me tell, let me share something here. I believe that the devil and his demons hold to the doctrine of inerrancy. I believe that the devil and the demons themselves believe that the Bible is God's word. I believe that's why they shudder when they hear it. I believe that's why Satan used it to try to tempt Jesus. I believe that they think it is the most powerful force on this planet outside of the spirit of God. And you know what? They don't know God. And they live in fear and terror. And they're doomed for destruction. And there's no salvation for them. Folks, you and I, we can hold to a high view of Scripture all day long. And believe rightly about the Bible. And we can miss Jesus. God's primary message, his primary word, his living word, the very person of truth that the vehicle of the words of the text is meant to carry to you. And that we are supposed to hear the words and then carry to the world. We can get the Bible all day long and miss Christ. And looking back at the history of fundamentalism and evangelicalism in America, in hindsight, we know that many, many have gotten the Bible right and missed Jesus. So brothers and sisters, the words matter. Interpreting the words matter. Applying these words to our heart and then reaching out for the speaker of these words, eating the words, living the words, doing the words, and carrying these words out to our broken world, I believe that matters even more. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. God has sent our little church into the city to be the bearers of his word, his word of hope and of salvation, his word of Jesus Christ. The text matters. May the name of Jesus and his person and his presence permeate every single word that we speak in his name. 
So let's read our Bibles. Let's take it to heart. Let's look to Jesus. But even more, let's go out into our world. Let's carry Jesus and speak Jesus. Live and breathe Jesus. He's the greater word. Let's pray.